Radio Mano Papachango. Recently became a big fan of your podcasts, uh, but I have heard you many times before on other podcasts, and I'm glad that I decided to finally commit to listening to you because you've become a real inspiration for me in my life. I recently listened to one of your podcasts, and forgive me because I've listened to so many of them recently, I don't remember which one it was, but you discussed the three factors that go into basically a healthy relationship which include love uh, compatibility and um, sexual intimacy or I guess sexual attraction and I was curious if you think that it is possible to maintain a friendship with another person who you feel two of those things for specifically sexual attraction and compatibility Um, and I would imagine if you spend enough time with this person uh, as you have said love is the one that's most abundant it's the easiest one to find because if you're sexually attracted to somebody and you're very compatible if you spend enough time together eventually you're probably going to fall in love with them Um, I am Uh, with somebody we have children together we've been together a long time and the person that I'm talking about is also with somebody else and her husband is a good friend of mine Um, and I'm curious because his his wife uh, is somebody who I am very compatible with Uh, we have really almost just about anything that we could talk about in conversation we both are interested in and have uh Uh, expressed that to each other and then um, she is very attractive she's sexually attractive uh, in my opinion Um, and I haven't spent enough time with her to say that I love her so I definitely can't say that I love her but I would imagine uh, if I spent enough time with her based on my sexual attraction to her and the fact that we are so compatible that I probably would fall in love with her so I am curious um what your opinion is on the ability for a person to maintain a non-sexual relationship with a person that they feel those three things for. And obviously, the feelings would have to be reciprocal. So it doesn't really matter if I feel those three things because if she doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter anyway, right? But I was just curious what your opinion is on the matter. Um, Yeah. I mean, uh, I feel like I've spent enough time listening to you to tell you that I love you uh, and I love who you are um, as a voice in this world and I hope you continue to be one. Thank you for that. Uh, I won't say your name and I cut the name out from the beginning because I don't want to get anybody in trouble. Um, a couple things come to mind listening to this situation first of all i should say that this email or this uh yeah this snip came in months ago so god knows what the situation is now but um since it's a relatively common situation let me 
give you my thoughts on this in any case. It, basically, the way I feel about this is, first of all, there's a big difference between loving someone and falling in love with someone. And um, this guy kind of conflated those things a couple of times uh, where he said, you know, if there's uh, sexual attraction and compatibility, eventually you'll fall in love. Um, and then at a different point, he said, you know, that he would love this person. And the thing is, uh, those things are very different in my estimation. Falling in love, just the phrase falling in love says it all, right? You don't fall with control. Fall implies an absence of control. Fall implies almost an accident, uh, a slippage. Uh, you tripped on something, you, you hit some black ice, you fell down the stairs. You don't fall with intention and control and uh, dignity and grace, right? These are not things that are associated with falling. And I fear that when we use that term, and it's not just a linguistic thing, I mean this in a conceptual sense, when we envision ourselves as falling in love, we're cutting ourselves an awful lot of slack. We're saying, ah, oh, I couldn't help it. I just fell in love. I, I didn't step into love. I didn't intentionally uh, walk into love. I fell into love. And the problem with that is, you know, in this situation, as it's outlined before us, you've got a potential betrayal of a good friend. You've got a betrayal of two marriages. You've got uh, children from at least one marriage who are going to be affected by this negatively, presumably, possibly children in the other marriage as well. Uh, so there's a lot of collateral damage that would be involved in um, any kind of uh, movement into this that isn't discussed openly and uh, agreed to by all parties. Maybe not the kids, they don't necessarily get a vote in this, but at least the four people involved in the friendships and the, and the marriages. So I think it's very important that we take responsibility for acknowledging the difference between loving someone and falling in love with someone. I've said before on this podcast, I, I kind of, I, maybe I'm just a cynical old fart, but I don't think falling in love is anything to be admired. Uh, I think loving someone is admirable. Loving someone, loving ourselves, loving each other is possibly the best thing we can do. But falling in love is often one of the worst things we can do because it's so blind and stupid and out of control and destructive. And we just throw up our hands and say, oh, I couldn't help it. The heart chooses what it chooses or some shit like that. But I don't think that's true as an adult. I think if you're actually an emotionally mature adult and you love someone, you want the best for them. You want them to be as happy as possible. 
And let's face it, in life, often our interests don't align perfectly with everyone else's interests. They don't align perfectly with the interest of this person we think we're falling in love with. And you need to look very, very closely at what you're doing. Are you actually going to make this person's life better? And even if you are, how many lives are you making worse? What's the net? Is it a net gain or a net loss? Remove yourself from the issue and just look at the other people who are being affected. So, I don't know, maybe it's surprising to some people to hear me say this, but I am not in favor of walking away from a marriage and children um, just because you're attracted to someone and, and find yourself compatible with them, especially when that person is married to a good friend of yours. So what's the problem with just continuing the situation as it is? I don't really see the problem there. The, the only problem is you don't get to fuck her, right? Um, but she's part of your life. You're part of hers. You could potentially, the four of you, get old together, travel all around the world, vacation together, watch your children grow up together. You could have a beautiful life ahead of you that would involve this woman, involve her at a quite profound level, potentially. Um, and it doesn't involve blowing up two families, two marriages. Because if you love her, then you need to think very long and hard about the repercussions of falling in love with her. Maybe sometimes being loving someone requires us not to fall in love with them, if that makes sense. The other thing to keep in mind is what people call NRE, New Relationship Energy. And that is that everything looks better from a distance. Everything seems ideal when you're anticipating it. I read that line recently. I've repeated it on here a bunch of times. Nostalgia is memory without detail. Well, in many ways, anticipation is, is the same, right? We anticipate all the good stuff. We don't anticipate the annoyances, the little things, the things you don't yet know. So the reality is different from the anticipation. And I think that's one of the things about love versus falling in love, right? Falling in love, you're falling in love with an idea. You're falling in love with a projection. You're falling in love with hope of what that person's going to mean for you, what that relationship is going to do for your life. Whereas loving someone requires actually knowing them, including their flaws including their annoyances, including all the, the little shit that you don't think about when you're just anticipating some sort of happily ever after bullshit. So those are my thoughts on this. It's, 
you know, this guy sounds very smart. He sounds sensitive. He's very thoughtful, obviously. And I would hate to see him do something that's going to hurt people he definitely loves, his children and his wife and his friend, only to find that a year, two years, five years from now, he's right back where he started. The only difference being the trail of destruction that he's left behind. Now that's not to say that I don't acknowledge the incredible pull of being attracted to someone. And, you know, I've written quite extensively about this in Sex at Dawn, how natural that is, how vital it is, which is why when possible, uh, and it, you know, is almost always possible, I, I hope, I think we need to be honest about that and talk about that openly and in a functional lasting relationship that's an issue that should definitely be open for discussion and I think a lot of the sweetness of forbidden fruit comes from the forbiddenness not the fruit itself and so a lot of the temptation to take this to another level is maybe because it's just so impossible to talk about it it's impossible to acknowledge it I mean, I, the last couple of weeks, I've been with some friends I've known for a long time, including a woman that I was with for years a long time ago, and a buddy that uh, I was friends with at that time and I'm still friends with. And the three of us openly talk about the fact that he wanted to fuck her the whole time that she was with me. And she laughs and she talks about, of course I knew that, Martin. Oh, I just said his name. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess that's okay. Um, anyway, of course she knew that. Of course I knew that. I mean, and there's no secret. That's fine. Who cares? She's beautiful. She was beautiful then. She's beautiful now. Uh, I'd be amazed if he wasn't thinking about that, if he hadn't been. Um, and so these things need to be talked about openly, and there's no reason they can't be. And I think by letting the pressure off in that way of having uh, honest conversations about these things, it makes us much less likely to do something stupid and destructive uh, than, than we would be otherwise. So those are my thoughts on that. Thank you for your, for your message and for your kindness and, and your trust in sending that to me. Uh, I just want to remind everyone I am on Substack now. So if you want anything more than the weekly uh, podcast that you're listening to now, like if you want to read articles I write, um, know what I'm, what music I'm listening to, uh, you want to hear me talk about or read me writing about where I'm traveling, what's going on, all that kind of stuff is on Substack now. So chrisryan.substack.com. Dot com is where you'll find that. And there are two different levels. You can just give me your email address, uh, put your email address in there, and you'll get a bunch of free updates on, on what's going on and the, the free uh, articles that I post. Or if you pay uh, five bucks a month, then you get everything, uh, including things that are for subscribers only. Uh, 
So two different levels, you can just, or three actually, you can just stay uh, where you are now, just download the podcast on your app or however you get it, and uh, nothing will change there. And uh, if you want to get some free stuff, you want to hear a little bit more from me, go ahead, go to Substack and sign up there, either at the free level or at the paid level. So thank you very much for that. This episode is with a guy that I have been good friends with for, uh, I don't know, six, seven years now. Uh, We became friends very quickly upon hanging out together for the first time, and I have watched him go through some changes. Uh, He describes it as a midlife crisis, which I guess it was. I mean, he, this is Simon Rex I'm talking about, of course. He, uh, when I met him, he was touring as Dirt Nasty with Mickey Avalon. They were doing that thing. Uh, He was in a a TV show. uh, What was it called? Something Rick, impossibly Rick or totally Rick or something like that. Um, which was was good. Um, but all his stuff, everything he was doing was sort of the same shtick, this kind of like good-looking, goofy, um, hyper-self-aware guy making fun of fame, making fun of himself, making fun of being attractive. The whole thing was kind of like playing off the same, the same shtick that he was doing. And... I mean, it was great. It was funny. It was cool. Um, But he'd been doing it for a long time, and I think he was getting tired of it. And he was getting to a place in his life where he was feeling like this isn't really scratching the itch anymore. This isn't enough. Much to his credit, he didn't settle for that. He didn't uh, take what was being offered and uh, adjust himself and his expectations to that. He He swam away, as I've often said. The hardest thing to do is to swim away from the island you've been on when you don't see any other islands out there and you don't know where you're headed. You don't know what's coming. But that's what Simon did. He kind of walked away from it all. And, um, you know, we talk about this in the podcast here. It wasn't just his career. It was also in relationships and friendships he was very he was very consciously and intentionally looking at his life and figuring out what worked and what didn't and what helped him grow and what was stopping him from growing or slowing his growth and he was ruthless about it and courageous about it and i saw him go through a lot of pain um around what he was giving up uh, much of which he loved. and uh, But he understood that it was necessary. And um, so it's one of the coolest stories I can tell right now because as soon as he did that, I mean, literally within weeks or hours even, depending on which aspect you're looking at, of him making these hard decisions and, uh, you know, really standing in his integrity the universe reached out and gave him an incredible gift which was the opportunity of a lifetime literally to play a character who is incredibly nuanced and Simon had one pitch and one swing and he knocked it out of the fucking park 
So if you have a chance, make sure you check out the film Red Rocket, which we talk about quite a bit in this conversation, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. All right, everybody, I'm going to play music that was sent in by the artist, a guy named Robert Harley. Uh, I think he's Irish, actually. Uh, And this song is called These Days. It's just been released. It's on Spotify. You can find Rob on Instagram, R Harley Music. It's H R L E Y Music, R Harley Music. And uh, his Facebook page is at R Harley 100. Uh, the song is called These Days. Uh, he's based in uh, Cork and Limerick, he says. Yeah, cool. Anyway, Rob Harley. Thanks for sending it in, Rob. All right, so this is Rob Harley, These Days, and then you'll hear me chatting with my boy, Simon Rex. Another thing you get if you uh, go to Substack is you get to see a couple of very interesting photos. One is Simon dressed up in Thai tourist clothing that he bought. (laughs) We were in Thailand together, uh, and he decided (laughs) he just went out one day, and he came back with this this outfit. If you've ever been to Thailand, you will get the joke. And the other is a very romantic photo of Simon and me in Bali. So that's only on Substack. Yeah. All right. Thanks, everybody. So oh. 
All right. So I am where so many people want to be, which is in bed with Simon Rex right now. <laughs> Wish we were recording this personally, man. I don't think I've ever been in it. Have you and I ever been in a bed together? Good question. <laughs> we've we've been uh, we've been hunting together, but uh, yep. we've, we've been in cars together. We've Air, been in cars, probably together. airplanes. I'm not sure. I have to think about. Yeah, it. we. I'm trying to think of when we were in Bali. Did I I set you up in that little like uh, Airbnb and came by and? But I don't think we ever laid down together. I don't think. But, well, we now we have something to do when we see each other. <laughs> it's exactly keep it fresh. So, brother, yeah. thanks for doing this, man. I, I, you know how it is. It's like you wanna you wanna catch up with people, and we've had a chance to catch up a little. But I've also wanted to have you on the podcast, and uh, but you know, I you don't want to bother people who are dealing with a ton of shit, and you've been dealing with craziness. For what about yeah, a year fun. now? Yeah, it's been about let's say I think this roller coaster. Uh, and for listeners, I he's talking about this movie Red Rocket, which you've been so nice and plugged on the podcast lately. It's been about a nine month. I think it was since July of last year is when we started the roller coaster at uh, Cannes Film Festival, and that's when I first realized we have something special because, you know, even to get into can is like a win, just being accepted into that category, which was the Palm d'Or. That's like the, the most prestigious category within the most prestigious film festival in the world. So that right there was a win and I, it could have been over right there, but it kept going. Um, so yeah, obviously it's been wild, but I always got time for you, man. And, and it's been uh, head spinning. It's been head spinning. Like I still don't think I've really processed it all. It's sort of like um, this sort of long burning shock, which is strange because uh, reality is already so weird already. So you add this on top of it. It's just totally a head fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Slow burning shock is an interesting concept. I, I, I know what you mean. It's like something hits and it keeps hitting and you never really get a chance to like stop and digest what's already happened because the next thing's already happening. So there's never like a, okay, that happened. Now I can sit here and process it. It's just going and going and going. It's going and going and going. And each point is crazier than the next and different. All of them are, are uh, these sort of peak experiences that are, you know, they're obviously in the sense it's not like jumping out of an airplane, but it's like more status game. Like life is sort of a status game, right? That's this this sort of video game of life that we play. And I got this moment where my status is higher. So what's interesting is that I'm still the same. Everything's still the same in my weird head. And I'm just sitting around in hotel rooms, living out of my bag as usual. But now everybody else perceives me differently, but my reality is the same. So it's sort of this weird energy field that's sort of artificial, but real also because it's not artificial, but it is. It's very strange. The whole psychology of like fame and six. I was actually just listening to the, this. I don't want to sound pretentious, but I was listening to the audiobook of the Tao Te Ching. And in one of the I don't know if it's a problem chapters of the book was, you know, you've got to be careful on the ladder of success. Uh, it's just as dangerous to be very successful as it is to be a failure, right? Like you, 
too much is unhealthy. You want to keep a balance, right? Right. So I went from like nothing to everything overnight. And it's just the, the tip, the scale tip is very strange, you know, and hard to process in real time. Well, yeah, but I would also argue you didn't really go from nothing. Right. Um, you know what I mean? You were right. sort of, you know, I mean, that's, that's what's so interesting about your trajectory, right? Like you had this thing happen when was it, in the nineties or something when you were a VJ and hanging out with Paris Hilton and Charlie Sheen and all that. Was that the night? Yeah, that was like late nineties. And I would say like from 96 to, you know, 2006, I had a, a, a real run where I was working a lot on TV and film and, you know, hanging out, you know, before social media, when Paris Hilton was like the biggest thing and MTV was the biggest thing. I was very in that world at that time. So I, you know, to your point, I didn't realize this, but I think I have PTSD without even realizing that it was like um, a trauma. But that amount of like, um, forgive the helicopters, I'm in Los Angeles as part of the ambiance. Um, it's, uh, it's strange because it kind of was a trauma. Like I remember coming back from these sort of crazy experiences, like doing a movie with Paris Hilton in Miami for a month. And every time you'd leave the hotel, the paparazzi and the craziness and the energy coming at you and the, you know, it was chaos, you know, and or the same thing with Charlie Sheen or, you know, or, or working on a hit TV show. You if you're sensitive, all that energy coming at you is going to kind of tap you out. And I I don't think I realized it at the time, but looking back, like it kind of was like, you know, I guess a good way, but it was a kind of a traumatic experience because it's such a head fuck, right? It's so yeah. weird. And yeah, I think when I was younger, I think I sort of believed the bullshit a little bit more when I was in that window you're talking about. I think when you're young, <clears throat> you're a little more naive and maybe you believe some of the bullshit that people are telling you, right? You start to maybe think you're special and great and then you eat the humble pie and kind of come back to reality. And that's what's interesting about this next, I don't want to say second wave because I've had a few different waves in my life but this one's really different because it's the first time that people are looking at me and and sort of uh respecting me right like i've never had this one before where people are looking at me like uh appreciative of my skill set whereas before it was like cool dirt nasty dude yeah bro and it was just sort of like like we talked about uh I wouldn't want to be a member of any club that would have me as a member. Like I didn't want to hang out with my fans and the people that liked my shit, no disrespect to them. But now all of a sudden people that are, are digging me are like the biggest producers in Hollywood and the biggest actors and everybody's buzzing about this movie and this performance. It's so weird that it's from these, not just my peers, but my superiors, like people in Hollywood who are way above me on the social status who are loving the movie. So I've never had this before. It's surreal. Um, and it's cool, but it's also very weird. Well, something that you and the movie have in common, I think is that there's this, uh, humility. There's a lack of pretentiousness in the film itself, right? Uh, in Sean Baker's style of filmmaking. Well, yeah, because I'm the best. Oh, wait, you were saying I'm humble. Sorry. <laughs> no, um, I, but I mean, the, the larger point is like, even at your most famous back in scary movie days or whenever the pinnacle of that fame was, your whole shtick was making fun of fame. Right. 
right? Dirt right. Nasty right. is making fun of a white guy who thinks he's black. Right. It's making fun of a, a goofy guy who thinks he's cool, right? I mean, right. like your whole thing is like, okay, yeah, I'm like good looking, but it doesn't matter. Yeah, I'm kind of famous, but it doesn't matter. It's all a joke. It's all bullshit. So there's something like really kind of zen about the approach you've taken to this whole thing. And so now it's really interesting how, in a way, that's like been this long inoculation for you. And now you can drink the poison without dying somehow. Yeah. Yeah. That's a great way to look at it. Yeah. Um, I, that's fair to say. I will, I will give myself credit for that, that I've been able to be self-aware enough to like laugh at myself and laugh at all, be self-deprecating. And, you know, obviously there's probably some insecurities and imposter syndrome in there. And like, why, you know, why am I here? Why did I deserve this? Cause I think I'm just like, you know, there's sort of this weird, not guilt. I don't know if it's guilt, but there's this sort of weird feeling attached to it that it's not fair. Like I see right. so many people wanting what I got and I never, it kind of just came to me in this fortuitous, no plan way. Um, and a lot of people want what I got and I got it. And it feels like, but that's sort of the lesson. It's like, don't want it so much or something, but I, I still don't understand really um, if it's just random or if there's a design to all of this, I don't know, but uh, I'm just glad to be working, man. And I just want to entertain people. I just want to work. Well, that's it. I mean, if you ever did start taking it seriously, I think you would implode. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because it would go so against your entire ethos right. like that. You're, And also, I mean, I don't want to get into your personal shit any deeper than you do, but you and I have been friends for quite a while. And, you know, you had, I think last time we talked, I, I said something about how it was almost like you had a career near death experience. Yeah. You know, and I was with you. I, I was able to to watch you go through that. And you had a, a relationship with a woman you really loved that was coming to its natural end. And you were kind of feeling like your career might be coming to an end. And you bought that land in Joshua Tree. And like you faced that shit. You know, you didn't struggle. You didn't try to hold on to things that you knew you had to let go of. You faced it like like a man or a woman like an adult i guess right and then the universe turned around and was like oh okay you're cool let's help you out it was amazing to watch that from outside yeah i mean and that's really what i think that's just the the truth and uh it's it's the whole thing so strange but yeah i think it was like i kind of had to go through the midlife existential crisis, the career crisis, the ego check, the, and really accept it. And, um, and, and I true, I think that the, you, you know, the, the universe or whatever you want to call it, will know if you're bullshitting. Cause I truly surrendered. It wasn't like, yeah. you know, I really was just like, okay, well, I looked back on my life and I had a very incredible successful journey through show business. So if it was over, I was okay with that. So, I was contemplating construction gigs. I, I truly was like, okay, well, I have all my limbs. I'm in good shape. I can work. I, I just gave up on the, the uh, sort of pipe dream of like making it in Hollywood. But the weirdest part about it, though, is what's deep, 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 deep inside. I knew it wasn't over. I had a feeling. That's why I didn't move to Costa Rica or Bali. 
I moved to Joshua Tree because I still knew I had to be two hours away on a leash in case something else pulled me back and I needed to be available because I just had this real, real gut instinct that there was something else out there. I didn't know it would be this. I would have been okay with landing some shitty show on the sci-fi channel that no one watched and making, you know, enough money to, to live in Joshua Tree happily. <clears throat> I didn't think it would be like accolades and awards and, right. you know, all of this sort of, uh, you know, attention that I got, which is cool. It's just so it's strange. <laughs> it's definitely strange. So yeah. you have any uh, career advice for people who are trying to make it <laughs> after I mean, going I, through all this? I guess it, that's what I, that, that's the part I struggle with. I don't know whether to say like, don't want it so bad, but how do you tell someone that's 24 years old, don't want it? Like they're going right. to be grasping at it. And it took me just getting older and wiser and having a life experience to, to let go. So I can't tell a, someone in their twenties to do that because they don't have that path or that time right. or whatever. So I think it's, my advice is always to just uh, don't take yourself too seriously and to just be yourself because you know, and that applies to show business and life. And those are so cliche, but a lot of the most cliche sayings are also the most true. That's why they're there. But, you know, if my advice would be, and I, and I wouldn't recommend that anybody pursue a, a show business career because I'm just sort of a, I'm just a lucky guy that it kind of came to. Um, but if you were to try it is to just like be yourself because eventually the right thing will find you that, that, that was meant to be for you like so many times you know you go into these auditions and appointments and you could be a great actor but you might not be right for the role because you don't have the right look or you don't look like the girl's sis brother that they cast or you're too old to play the son of the woman that's cast. there's just so many factors that go into it that are out of your control that you got it's like a numbers game you got to you got to be able to take rejection you know, you're going to be told no 99% of the time. Like if you can't handle that, then don't do it. Cause there's a lot of rejection and that sucks, you know? Um, yeah. So. so you were, you know, when I watched red rocket, uh, and I think, you know, virtually everybody who watched the film is amazed at your performance because it's, it's a hard character. You're, you're playing someone who's kind of, despicable in some ways but is charming and likable you know it's it's this really nuanced layered character and that's a hard thing to do as an actor right it's easy to be the nice guy it's easy to be the funny guy it's easy to be the bad guy but to be all those guys all at once and come across as authentic, I imagine, I mean, I'm no actor, but I imagine that's a hard fucking thing to do. And you nailed it so well, which is why you're in this position and why you're getting six minute standing ovations and all that shit. It can, did you, when you were doing it, did you feel like, Holy shit, I know how to do this. I've always known how to do this. Or were you learning on set I mean, did you feel like you were totally out of your depth? Like, how, how what was that experience like? <clears throat> well, you're always learning on set. That's where you learn the most. So every single job you do, you learn so much more every time you do a TV show or a movie or a student film or anything. So I encourage anyone who's trying to do this, just go make your own shit, go work, just, just you know, experience it, because that's really where you learn so much. Um, uh, but 
I didn't think about it at the time. And I'm glad because I, I don't think we had time to think about like I didn't realize normally when you shoot a movie, they have something called dailies where at the end of the day, you if you want to, you can look at the footage you shot throughout the day and you sort of have a gauge of how it's going based on what you're looking at. So often the director and the producers will you know, look at the dailies at the end and see how it's going. We shot this on film. There were no dailies. So this was like shooting a movie before everything went digital in about the year 2000. And back in those days, you didn't have that luxury. So you sort of just shoot everything. You send the film off to Los Angeles um, in a truck every you know couple of days. And then it's, you know, stored away until you edit it. So that's how this movie was made. So I had no, and but normally I don't like to look at dailies anyway, because you sort of get in your head and you're watching yourself and then you read, it's sort of a weird psychological thing to see yourself as you're shooting. It kind of takes you out of it. So I don't like to look at dailies anyway, but there was no looking at any of the footage as we shot. So it was a mystery to me. It was just like, shoot it, move on, forget about it onto the next, which I actually prefer. I think that keeps you sort of in the zone better. Um, there was moments as we're shooting it where I would kind of step back and be like, whoa, we're going to have something special here. Cause I knew Sean Baker was such a genius and I could tell just from the world he put me in that it was going to be a cool movie and sexy and dangerous and all the things that Hollywood isn't anymore, which I was just loved going against the grain of the norm. I mean, there's not even movies with, anti-heroes anymore i grew up watching bad lieutenant or scrooged or you know where bill murray's just a horrible person um uh or you watch you know uh, there are so many movies where the you know, taxi driver like it's okay to have the lead guy be a, a despicable character those movies don't happen too much anymore so i think by default people were like loving this film because it brought back that genre of i mean this movie looks and feels like it could have been in the 70s the 90s um so i knew we had something special but i never was like aware that it would be you know at the Cannes film festival or i'd be winning a spirit award all those things never crossed my mind um i just saw it as oh cool this will probably get me a little bit of work and that was about the most I thought outside of working day to day. I had no idea. I had no idea. Um, but that's better. I I'm glad I wasn't thinking ahead of like what it would look like on the other side. All I was doing was I looked at it like a game of golf. This is weird. But like I looked at it like Sean Baker gave me this opportunity. And if I broke down, you know, it's almost like when you hear that story about the climber who like broke his. I, I can't remember if it was the famous story about a climber who like broke his leg or broke his arm, but he had to like crawl like two miles, but he knew that if he looked at the two mile crawl, he'd never make it. So he'd be like, okay, I just got to make it to that rock a hundred yards. And he'd drag himself to that rock and he'd like, he, he would compartmentalize or like make the mission smaller. So every day I looked at it like a golf game and I had to par the course at least. Right. So I would just break it down into like, okay, Every single day, I got to par the course and and do Sean justice. So I kind of just did made it like a game, if that makes sense. And every single day was these little uh, challenges. Um, and I just had to execute for Sean and par the course. And I think we did, you know, and that was really how I looked at it. it, it does that make sense? Yeah, except I think it was a birdie for sure. 
Yeah, no, there could have been a couple of birdies in you there. Got a bunch of birdies. <laughs> Hopefully, a hole in one somewhere. We we got an award, so we did a few awards. So I guess we got a couple hole in ones. But it was like, I yeah, I just kind of broke it down into these little sections because if I just looked at the whole thing as a whole, it's a lot to take in, and there wasn't a lot of time. And I really, you know, kind of got to just go improv and go off instinct and play. I mean, that's why they call it a play. Like, just bring it back to like when you're a kid. Use your imagination pretend and play you know just god it's so simple we overthink everything and he was like a big kid right the character was like a big kid that didn't know what he was doing so i really just made him a boyish childlike peter pan syndrome no bad because everything's about intentions right so if he doesn't really have bad intentions you can kind of root for him a little bit because he doesn't know what he's doing it's like a little cute puppy pissing on the rug he doesn't know what he's doing ah fuck you but you, you know you clean it up and it's cute. So that was sort of how I approached it. But I mean, one of the themes in the film is that he meets this very young woman. Like she's what, just about to turn 18 when he meets her. Yeah. She's 17. Yeah. Although, although she never shows her ID. So we're just taking her word for her age. Right. Which is that's true. dangerous. Um, that's true. But he, he immediately thinks, Oh, this, this girl would be hot in porn. Right. And so one of the themes of the movie is he's, you know, what, what's the word grooming is that, you know, yeah. yep. so do you, when you think of the character, do you really think like he didn't see that as potentially detrimental to her? Um, yeah, that's a good question. I think he was blind to the fact that he would be hurting her in the process by, bringing her into this world of adult film but the writing is good you know we talked about this a lot in the press afterwards she has agency she if you know you really think about it she's like what the one who grabs my dick first right. she's like i want to do this so you know you see me wanting to groom her into the point of like convincing her to do something but either i'm a master manipulator whose suggestion alone got her to you know say i want to do this or she had agency. Um, I, you know, I think it was written that to protect me from being the worst person in the world that she wanted it too, um, and that the legal age of sex in Texas consensually is seventeen, which is sort of mm -hmm. arbitrary and touches on how ridiculous how like if you cross the line from Oklahoma to Texas, having sex with a seventeen-year-old girl in one state, you know, is legal, and in the other state, you're going to go to jail and be a child molester. You know, it's just so insane. Um, so yeah, I think that it was, they, they wrote it or Sean, Sean and his writing partner, Chris wrote it with that understanding, you know, that she wanted it too. So I think that I was suggestive and pushed her towards it and she wanted it. Yeah, you're right. The writing is fantastic. Uh, because not only does she have agency, it's never clear who's seducing whom in that relationship. Right. Right. You know, I mean, there's I won't I won't uh, ruin it, but there's a scene on the roller coaster where it turns out, you know, like everything gets flipped in such an interesting way uh, that nobody sees coming. It's really an interesting scene and beautifully written. So, yeah, you're right. And and I I mean, kudos to those guys that it took a lot of courage in 2021 to make a film that touches on these issues of sexual exploitation of a relationship between a 17 year old. And I don't know how old your character is, but 
well into his thirties. Yeah. Forty. Draft forties, early forties. Did you feel did you feel any kind of like I mean, you know, given the trajectory of your career, right? That you had this this peak with the in the nineties or the early two thousands. And then your career sort of as an actor sort of like settled down for a while and you had a couple of small things. And then you're cast in this and you're cast as a character who had a career, I mean, in porn, you know, not in scary movie that peaked and came down. Did you feel any kind of like, oh, they're like taking advantage of the fact that people know I used to be famous um yeah there's well sean told me when i got to texas he goes there's definitely a meta thing with casting you and he told me and i was okay with that i think that was sort of his point in casting it there was definitely some layers to why he cast me you know it's not that he didn't he obviously had to believe that i could do it he wasn't going to do it just for that meta stunt casting reason so i think it was both it was like he's a smart dude he yeah. definitely, and he told me, he goes, you know, I'm not going to bullshit you. You know, I cast you because of this meta circumstance. There's, the, you know, because uh, there is some truth and parallels to my life and this character, um, which you could argue, you know, some people will say, oh, he's just playing something close to home. That's easy. But I, you know, I'll push back on that and challenge anybody. You know, a lot of acting coaches will say playing something like yourself is actually the most vulnerable thing you could do. Um, it's easier to hide behind some character that you're like a, you know, a doctor or work in a lab or whatever. But when you're playing something, it was almost like a cathartic experience to sort of have to do something true to yourself and convey it on a screen and go through these emotions that you've been suppressing. Like it was like a intense journey, you know? Um, and like, this guy, Andrew Garfield, he's a really big actor who was up for Tick, Tick, Boom. He came up to me at one of these award ceremonies and he had watched the movie and he was like, man, mate, I got to tell you, that was beyond like an actor and a director. You guys tapped into something bigger that was so incredible and transcendent and p- powerful to watch. And he wasn't bullshitting me like actor to actor. He really was like, was, as a lot of actors were really impressed and, and, um, because it was really vulnerable, right? Yeah. So well, yeah, I think it, people appreciate that. It was, you know, you said it was like close to home, and and I can see a lot of things. You know, knowing you personally, I can see a lot of things that you, Simon Rex, have in common with that character, right? There's a charisma, there's a physicality, there's a boyishness, you know, there's a, a obvious intelligence, but there are also things really important parts of your character that you don't share. I mean, of you personally, that you don't share with that character. Right. The main thing I think of is sensitivity, right? Like that guy isn't aware of how he's affecting everyone else. Like you said, right. he's a puppy pissing on the carpet. Whereas I feel like you are maybe hyper aware right. of what other people are going through and what's going on to the point where sometimes it can get overwhelming for you. That's exactly right. And that's what I'd always say in every interview afterwards. They're like, what's the difference between you and this character? And it's exactly that. It's self-aware, being self-aware. And there's so many people in this world. And it's interesting. And that's why this was fun to play, because those people blow my mind. There's, you know, uh, a very large amount of this country or probably the world is so unaware of their actions that it's it's 
mind boggling. It's like, it's like the asshole when you land on the plane and then everyone's phones on and the one guy just gets on his phone on speakerphone and is just like <laughs> yelling a personal, you know, thing to his wife or a bit, you know, a business thing. And you're like, dude, do you not see that there's everybody's or you just not even aware of it's like the same asshole yeah. who like you're getting on the plane and is like putting their bag in the overhead compartment, but they don't realize there's 70 people behind them and they're just taking their time. And they're just seriously, they're just not even aware of the fact that they're just not self-aware. So it's very binary. It's like you either have that or you don't. I don't know if there's any nuance to that. It's like you're either kind of a blind Lee walking through life blindly as an asshole or you're not. And that's what Mikey was. Mikey was the kind of guy who would just take his time and put the bag in the overhead and people behind him are going, come on. And he's just taking his time. I'm the guy who's putting his bag up and scooting in the aisle and like, Oh, sorry, go ahead. Or if my phone rings, I whisper and go, I got to call you back. I'm on a plane. I don't want to, I don't want to disturb anybody. I don't want to be in the way. So that was what was fun to play was that asshole I, we all encounter every day. We've dated them. We know they're in our friend circle. We, we see them at the store. Um, so it's interesting because I'd say that to the movie theater afterwards. In a lot of these screenings, I'd say we all, you know, afterwards we do a Q&A in the movie theater. And I'd always say, like, you know, we're in two, 200 people would be in the theater. And I would say mathematically in this room, there's a few Mikey Sabres and you don't even know you're this guy, <laughs> you know, or girl. By definition, yeah. That was the funnest part to play was that because I'm so not like that. Yeah. Do you, do you think, are you going to, are you being uh, typecast? Are you uh, with the things you're being offered? Is there a lot of the same sort of thing? Actually, what's interesting is I'm getting, so, this is, I don't not and not to sound vain, but we're getting so many offers coming in from, because of this movie, because you got to understand, like this movie did not do well at the box office. We knew it when Sean Baker said it perfectly. He, he nailed it. He said before we shot the movie, he goes, the Academy's not going to go near this movie. He was right. He goes, it's way too taboo of a subject for the old conservative, you know, Hollywood, you know, older white people about this subject matter of this film. They're not going right. near it. Right. And he was right. They didn't. He goes, we're not going to make any money at the box office. He was right. We didn't. He said, we're going to win a few accolades at some festivals and we might win a spirit award. That's exactly what happened. I mean, he knew totally what was going to happen. And um, now we're getting all of these amazing offers because who did see the film and love it was everybody in Hollywood. Right. And that's really selfishly all that matters to me is who's going to see this movie that's going to give me another shot and some work, right? So Steven Spielberg saw it and loved it. I just went and auditioned for fucking Spielberg the other day. Or, you know... What was um, that like? It was surreal. I, well, it was, I, I had just got back from shooting a movie in New Mexico, and I didn't sleep. We shoot nights, so I stayed up until 6 in the morning working. I get on a plane. I fly to L.A. When I land, my phone goes on and says, uh, you have to read in the next two hours and put yourself on your phone for Spielberg. And I go, I haven't slept and I don't even know the material. And they go, okay, well, this is your job. And when Steven Spielberg calls, you do it. So get, get familiar with the lines and look as fresh as you can and put yourself on tape. So I went to my hotel room. I checked in. I studied the lines. I put my phone up. I had my manager's assistant on an iPad behind my phone reading the lines off camera. And I submitted a very cold read, as they call it, like a non-rehearsed read. Feedback was... You did a good job, but you're not right for this character. We look forward to reading you on other stuff in the future. 
So it went good. Like that's good enough. Right. I didn't right. get the job, but I didn't blow it either. Right. So those are, the, and, and this was to play like an art critic in this movie with Bradley Cooper. Now that's not typecast. That's a very different direction. I'm right. about to go through the movie where I play a Nazi. That's very different direction. I'm, I just shot a movie where I play a gay um, necrophiliac <laughs> who smokes crack, who smokes crack in a very broad, in a very broad comedy. I just shot another movie where, where I play a fake shaman. So everything I'm choosing, I'm oh. cognizant of what I'm choosing, and I'm going a different direction every time because I just want to fuck people's heads up and have people one movie after another, if they see it, be like, wait, where the fuck did this guy come from? He's doing the, you know, he's got the Sean Baker movie where he's playing the, you know, washed up porn star. Then he's going to play a Nazi. Then he's going to play a necrophiliac prostitute crackhead gay guy. Then he's going to play a shaman. Then, he, you know, it's like I want to just hit him from every angle. So I'm choosing my roles to go against that uh, possible uh, outcome, which would be getting typecast. So that's right. the whole plan is to not let that happen. So that's what mm. I'm choosing everything based on is like fun characters that are going in different directions. So it's right. fun, man. I never have been in this position where I'm saying no to nine out of 10 things. I mean, this and you taught me this. I got to just say this. Um, I'm not going to say the amount of money because that's really tacky. But one that, the day after I won the Spirit Award, I had a bunch of offers come in. And that's really rare in this business is to get a direct offer where you don't have to audition. That means they're just saying, we want you in the movie. You don't even have to audition. It's yours if you want it. Here it is. That doesn't happen a lot. You got to be like a working actor for that, that those offers. I had four offers come in in one day that totaled a very, very, very large amount of money. I looked at each one of the scripts. They were okay. Then I look up the director and I look up their work and I watch their movies and none of them moved me. They weren't, they were okay. And two years ago, I would have murdered to work on these projects, but I would just be choosing it based on money and not on the character and the work and the experience. So I say no. And my management had to respect it because I told them when I signed with them, I'm not going to choose stuff based on money. I hope you guys aren't thinking we're just going to choose some cash grab and have a five-year plan and my career's over again. I want the 20-year plan. You know, I want to be doing this into my 60s, right? So, of course, they don't want to hear that. Of course, they want to make money, but they agreed. And I said... Um, you know, I told them when I signed with them, like, I'm not going to just do the cash grab. And I learned that from you. You taught me this over the last few years. It was right about the time I got my RV. I was watching how this is about five years ago. I was watching how you were living and, and how you were pretty much, you know, not making a ton of money, but stretching it out and having a very good quality life. And you teaching me the, those, those lessons, like, you know, I think it's Thoreau said a man's wealth can be determined by what he could do without or I think it's Ralph Waldo Emerson said, your possessions begin to possess you. So I thinned everything down and I was very happy for the last few years making, you know, well under six figures a year. And I'm eating sushi and I'm traveling around in the RV and my life's great. I was like, oh, Chris is right. You don't need, it's a trap. Like you don't need to have the square footage. You don't need to have a bunch of money to be happy. Right. I think they did that test and it was like anything over 75 grand isn't going to make you more happy than right. Or something around that ballpark. So I took that into this moment. I took what you taught me and my experience in that truth into this moment and know that I don't need the money. 
So do you know how liberating that is like to not have to be a slave to the dollar? And I already own my house in Joshua Tree because I had to buy it outright. So my house is paid off. I don't have any bills because it's off grid. All I have is my phone and my car payment. I don't need a lot of money, dude. So I don't need to fall into that fucking trap. So I'm choosing everything. I'm turning down a lot of money. And then I chose this indie movie that pays nothing because I love the character in it. Right. That's where, that's where you want to be, dude. Yeah. And it's, and it's so awesome. I mean, you know, how do you quantify the, the satisfaction and the, the sort of like, just the thrill of playing a character that you're really into. And then it's going to be on film forever. You know what I mean? Like, what's that worth? I mean, it's crazy. You would pay to do that. It's priceless because, uh, you know, two years ago, I would have killed to have done a horrible TV show that I never would want to tell anybody to go see. I would be lucky to be on that. Now I'm finally in a position where I only want to do work that I want to say, hey, Chris, go check this one out. Sending you the link to this other movie you're going to dig because I'm proud of each one and the fun character I get to play. And I just want to, you know, yeah, I just want to do a bunch of different cool things that I'm proud of, you know, and that's that's the impetus to my choice is not a big paycheck because I don't need it to be happy. You know, and the weird thing that I'm caught in is like the more this ball is rolling, the more fame I get. I sort of ran away from that a long time ago, you know, because I realized that was a very intense thing. If you're like a sensitive person and I'm not saying that like it's a good thing. I think sometimes I'm like hype, like highly, a highly sensitive person. I think that's like actually a thing. When my mom said when I was born, like like the light would be too strong in my eyes and the doctor told my mom that you have a highly sensitive baby, like a a bus would go by and be very loud and it would jar me. So I think I'm too sensitive to a fault that Mm. when you got that large microscope on you, it could be a lot, you know? So luckily I've been around long enough to kind of know how to handle all of this, but it's definitely um, a strange thing. Fame is a weird thing. Yeah, I was going to ask you, what's the downside of all this? Because we've been talking about how awesome it is, but I mean, it must be distorting some of your personal relationships or, I mean, I don't know how free you are to talk about any of that, but, you know, like the way your friends are dealing with you or maybe family or women or, you know, if if it's all the yeah (laughs) yeah no so it's all those things i never will know if a woman really likes me for me and then you're caught in this weird head fuck where you're like you meet a girl and does she like me or does she like who i am in the status game and am i going to that's why in la it's a bunch of wannabe actors everyone's trying to chase a dream am i just a component to them getting their dream and they see me as a vehicle to execute their vision or do they like me for me? So I hasn't it always been that way for you. Yeah, it has been, but more so now, more so now. Um, I have to, it's interesting to see who, you know, I was talking about this with one of my buddies who quit acting a long time ago and ventured off into real estate and became the number one real estate agent in California. And he's laughing because he ditched 15 years ago, the Hollywood dream. And now he's a millionaire and he's laughing. And he's just like, we were talking about my moment I'm having right now and how few of my friends that I've been in this boat with for the last 15 20, or 20 years in LA 
it's strange to me how few are reaching out to even just say congrats or proud of you or happy for you. It's more people, what I'm moved by is people on the outside who I didn't know were rooting for me. People that I thought, you know, were kind of haters or didn't like me. I'm like, for instance, I saw Jimmy Kimmel at the Saturday Night Live after party did it. I shot a little skit for Saturday Night Live and Jimmy Kimmel comes up to me and he's like, man, I'm so happy for you. When I heard you got this movie, everybody in Hollywood's buzzing about how you're having this moment and how, how cool this is. So it's more people like that that are in the business that are jazzed for me that I didn't expect. And on the other side, it's people inside my social circle who aren't showing how happy they are for me. It's very strange. And I think it's just because I'm the kind of person who, like, if I saw one of my buddies was, you know, had a big movie out or whatever, I'd be the first one to be texting them or calling them and saying, dude, this is so awesome. And I'm surprised at how little it's happening within my fraternity of other actors. Um, because, you know, maybe maybe they're jealous. I don't know. Maybe they're dealing with their own shit. It's a, you know, it's a weird time in COVID. So the whole thing is really strange. I try not to take anything personal. I sort of learned that rule of, a while ago that right now, like, give everybody a hall pass. We're going through a really weird time. There's a lot of people struggling. Like, it ain't about me. Like, don't take it personal. So it's all of those things you just said. They're all factors in my head you know yeah, it's hard you can i mean i think you can get in like a feedback loop you know where you've heard me tell the story about when i met peter gabriel and i i made him really uncomfortable because i was trying to make him comfortable by treating him like a normal person which he isn't you know i just fucked everything up uh i wonder if that's not happening with some of these people that, that you're thinking of who you know, they maybe they're really happy for you, but it would just feel weird. Like they haven't called you in two years. So now they're going to call you that you, you know, you're on top of the world. It, it kind of comes across as like they're taking advantage of some in some way or like, oh, now you call me. You didn't call me for my birthday last year. And now you're calling me because you know what I mean? They might be overthinking it the way I was overthinking that shit with Peter Gabriel. Who knows? Yeah, and that's a good way to look at it. And at the end of the day, after I get caught in that feedback loop, I just kind of uh, end up thinking like, whatever, it's not, you know, it, it's not, it could be a million things of why they're not reaching right. out and not take it personal. It's just really. Um, and, not, and not assume the negative, right? It, right. It, it could be like, they think you're so busy that them calling you would just bother right. you and make you feel obligated to call them back. You know what I mean? Well, that's what's, yeah, that's what's weird is that a couple of my friends will like, you know, and I know they're just jazzing me, but they'll be like, hey, man, you know, I know you're a big movie star now, but my birthday's next week. Uh, so you probably are too busy. So, yes, there is like a lot of that. I'm like, dude, no. Or even, you know, on a smaller scale, like you being like, hey, I know, you know, I know you're busy right now. Do you have an hour to podcast with me? I don't want to add to your thing. It's like I got a lot of time. I know, even even with this busy, crazy moment I'm having, I still got time to talk to a friend for five minutes or do a pod with you or, or whatever. So um, I think you're right. I think in other people's minds, they see it as like, my life must be so insane. Don't bother them. But I, I got a lot of time, you know, to talk to friends and do these kind of things. So yeah. it's all good. It's funny. It's like, it's like beautiful women. You, you read these interviews with these, you know, beautiful women and they're like, the, the the journalist says, oh, you must get harassed all the time by dudes. And they're like, no, men are afraid to talk to me. Nobody right. comes up to me. And it's like, yeah. it's the opposite of what it looks like from outside, you know? Right. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. 
Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. So I, I, I go through all that. So everything that we just discussed, I go through all of that in my head. And then I'm like, it's okay. You know, it's no, it's, it's not personal that, you know, there could be a million things. And then, uh, yeah, it's, it's just a strange time. It's already a strange time in general. We're all in this collective twilight zone. So then you add this, uh, surreal moment that already would be a twilight zone on top of another twilight zone and then on top of that twilight zone is like thank god i could you know me and you were friends and you really saw me going through like a real i like i said before like a midlife existential crisis like you met me right at a time where i was going through a lot of shit and i was like that i had been probably suppressing for a long time of of just you know growing up and manning up and and um so many things you saw me going through. Um, I, I'm just glad I kind of pushed just past that for this all to happen. Because if I was going through that on top of this, I don't know if I could have had the capacity of uh, of, of handling it all. But I'm, I feel like I'm handling this pretty well. Um, I'm staying pretty grounded. At least I think I am. You know, I guess I wouldn't know if I wasn't right. But I think I'm staying pretty realistic about it all. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think I think you're staying pretty grounded, man. Yeah. And like I said before, it's you know, you dealt with that shit like in a real way. You didn't deal with that shit in the typical Hollywood. You didn't go off and do an ayahuasca weekend and say, "Okay, I've worked through my trauma." You know, like it was you you fucking really trudged through it. Uh, you know, like reframing your relationship with your dad, like the way you faced that. You know, thinking about your friend who fucking jumped out the window of your apartment in LA, in uh, New York, right? Like yeah. substance issues and, you know, fame issues and intimacy issues. Like you were fucking just going one after another after another and you didn't stop. And it was, I got to say, looking at it from outside, it really made me admire you a lot. Oh, thanks, man. That means a lot because it wasn't easy to sit in that uncomfortable stickiness. I remember, yeah, you were with me through a real, it was interesting that you came into my life kind of during that, all of that, um, because it was really sitting in the, as my dad likes to say, sort of like he, you know, my dad's a real hippie. He's a breathwork coach and, uh, you know, a very new age guy. And, and a lot of the stuff he says, I, I don't agree with some stuff I do. And, and one of the things he said, though, that's in, that's sort of a, uh, paraphrasing what you just said is that sort of this whole pandemic is like the um, and this is maybe just him being an optimist and a hippie. But he says that, uh, you know, right now we are in the the green sludge between the caterpillar and the butterfly. Right. That there's this sort of uh, sh- awakening happening or a shift happening that's more than just the pandemic. And everyone's got to sit with this kind of uncomfortable transitional moment. And um, that's kind of what I was going through on a personal level then was just sitting in that uncomfortable sludge between the transformation. And part of that was dealing with a lot of stuff with my dad. You know, I, th- I talked about this on Theo's podcast. I went and did LSD with my dad. I mean, talk about fucking facing some shit. You know, me and my dad never had a good relationship. Um, I was visiting him in North Carolina and he offered to do LSD together. And at uh, first I said, no. And then I go, wait a minute. Well, was set with a good intention. Maybe this could actually be really healing. And it was, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff and it was very intense and it was just, whoa, you know, it was heavy, man. So a lot of things like that I was going through as you and I were friends over the last, God, I met you, I guess about seven, six, seven years ago. 
You were doing that show, uh, Totally Rick. Is that yeah, typical Rick? Yeah. Typical Rick. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah another was... character that was you making fun of yourself, right? right. I mean, it's it, like it's really interesting how how that was what you were doing for so long. It, yeah, yeah. Well, and that's another funny thing is that now all these people like are taking me so seriously as an actor and yeah. I have imposter syndrome, but I do think for the first time, I'm not, I don't feel like a bullshit artist. Like when people said, what do you do for a living up until like, I never would feel comfortable saying I'm an actor. Like I yeah. just felt like I somehow landed a few acting gigs and I'm just sort of an entertainer, but I'm not like a thespian. I'm not Joaquin <laughs> Phoenix. I'm a method actor who, you know, I'm a guy who I think yeah. has an instinct and I know how to perform and I've taken enough acting classes to where I understand it. But, you know, uh, for the first time, like I can say I'm an actor and not feel like I'm an imposter, which right. is interesting. You know, it took a long time yeah. to get there. I'm that um, way with the word author. I, I feel every time I say someone says, oh, you're an author. I'm like, oh, author. Yeah. Oh, man, that sounds pretentious. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I, I think I still struggle with it. But other people see me in this way that I don't see myself, which to me is hilarious. Like these, you know, I'm, I'm at all these like, you know, artsy, you know, in the in the cinephile world of filmmaking, I am at the most uber, you know, uh art house cinema events with these film lovers coming up to me and i can see how they're looking at me like they're truly like whoa and i'm just like me <laughs> like oh god you guys like i'm just an idiot you know so anyway. yeah well and you're i mean tell me if i'm wrong but i feel like your motivation has always in in entertainment has been to make people laugh right to yeah. sort of so are you doing roles now where there are no laughs or is there always a com comedic element to them? Well, it's funny you brought that up. So for the first time ever, because of this movie, Red Rocket, which is a dark comedy, which does have comedy in it. It also has a lot of very grounded, real vulnerable moments of acting that are not comedic at all. I mean, it's mostly grounded in reality. And then there's some funny little moments here and there. Um, so if anything, a lot of filmmakers are seeing this movie and going, wow, Simon Rex actually can do something besides comedy. So if anything, we're steering towards doing more of the dramatic stuff because that's more challenging, that's more interesting. And we can always go back and do comedies. And, you know, you see so many, you know, it's interesting. You see a lot of like comedic actors can make the jump to drama, like the, the most silly, like, fucking animated people ever robin williams jim carrey i mean they couldn't even be still in their own skin like beyond comedic geniuses can then go do a grounded dramatic movie and win an oscar right yeah. you don't really see it go the other way around you don't see too many i mean maybe you could say de niro was kind of funny and meet the parents but his character wasn't comedic it was just a funny movie so I'm aware of that. And I've always been very broad in my comedy. So if anything, I want to do that route, which is like, whoa, silly Simon Rex is doing like a grounded real thing. How cool is that? So that's kind of what I want to do. Right. And then always go back to a comedy because I can always do that. Right. It's kind of like jazz and, and rock and roll, like a jazz musician can play rock and roll, but very few rock and roll musicians can uh. play jazz. Right. I never thought about that one. Yeah, that makes sense. Because I think right. comedy, like the timing is so important. It's so right. instinctive. Right. And I mean, what do I know? I'm not a fucking acting coach. <laughs> no, but you're right. You're right. Because but it, I would take comedy classes. I remember going in New York to like uh, these improv workshops I would take 
back when I was like first starting acting in the nineties and I was going to, so I was trying stand up comedy. So I'd go to these improv workshops, kind of like what our buddy Kyle is doing right now. I think he's doing an improv class and he loves it. It was so much fun. But I remember looking around the classroom and after a few weeks going, Oh, they're not funny and they're not going to learn how to be funny. This class isn't going to teach them that. You can't learn you, it. Yeah. You, that's something it's almost like, I don't know if you could liken it to someone who's born like Whitney Houston probably was born with that voice. Right. right. And someone could go to acting or a singing class forever. They're never going to get that range that she's got. So yeah. I think some people are born with a thing that je ne sais quoi or that quality that you either got or you don't. So in some senses, I think, that is not a learned thing and it's binary, but, but I don't know. Um, that's just sort of what I saw. So let, let's do some name dropping here, man. How yeah. was the Oscars party? Well, that was a trip because I saw like all these people that, you know, I, I've so many celebrities that I, I wanted to bother, but then I'm also like, I ah, don't ruin your fantasy of them. Like Larry David was the first person I saw when I walked in and I'm a huge Larry David fan. But I didn't want to bother him. Like, what am I going to say to Larry David? Right. Unless someone introduces me to him, I'm just going to leave him alone. Um, I talked to Jason Momoa, who uh, I had never met. Your neighbor. We're neighbors in Joshua Tree, but I've never yeah. met him. So I went up. I'm like, hey, man, I'm your neighbor. He's like, oh, you're, yeah, I've heard about you, blah, blah, blah. So we exchanged numbers and blah, blah, blah. Who else did I see? Um, uh, were you at the like, were you at the Oscars themselves or did you just go to the party? No, I since our movie didn't get nominated for any Oscars, which Sean was right. Um, we I was just invited to the Vanity Fair party, which is sort of like the party that everyone from the Oscars goes to after. And right. it's known to be like the hardest party to get into of the year. And, uh, you know, so I went in there and just sort of um, hung out. Who did I see? You know, God, I mean, there were so many people in there. I can't even remember. It was like the cast of Euphoria, like the biggest show on TV. And I was with, uh, you know, John Hamm and like, um, God, he's just a so funny many. guy. What's John that? Hamm. Oh, Bill Murray. Yeah. John Hamm, right? John Hamm is a funny dude. A very funny dude. He's, he's awesome. He's just like such a Marlboro man, like real man's yeah. man, but gets comedy. Like he's actually very self-aware and, and can laugh at himself, yeah. which is, rare and then here was the highlight though to answer your question so when i was at can i had dinner with bill murray after we didn't win the uh, award um the the woman who worked for the international film company who put distributed our movie had worked with bill murray before so as a surprise she took us to dinner and had bill murray show up and eat with us as a sort of like ah, since we didn't win anything here hang out with bill murray and it was like me and sean baker like <laughs> oh my god and I remember I was so wiped out from the week of like the you know experience of can and it was, it was head spinning that I was so wiped out and I asked Sean for an edible and I ate a little marijuana edible as we were done with everything. So I'm sitting there stoned out of my mind. I don't want to talk to anyone. I'm really in my head. And Bill Murray sits down at the table and I'm like, fuck, why did I eat that edible? I don't even want to. I don't know what to say to this guy I was like insecure and kind of paranoid and like in my head. Cause I hadn't been smoking weed lately. So I was, I got really high and Bill Murray was so sweet. He sits next to me and he's like filling in the uncomfortable silence, like slapping my knee going, Hey, I'm here and you got a great movie kid. And he's just like, he's engaging with me anyway. So I see him at the, uh, I'm having a few cocktails in me and I see him at the uh, vanity fair party. So I go up to him and he, and in and out was being catered there. And he had just finished an in and out burger. And I go, hey, Bill, do you remember me? We had dinner at Cannes. And he looks me up and down. He wraps up his wrapper from his In-N-Out burger. He opens my jacket pocket, puts the wrapper on the inside breast pocket of my jacket, 
slaps my chest like to say here's my rapper you know and then goes yeah we had dinner at a middle east he goes yeah we had dinner at a middle eastern restaurant and then he just walked away and, and but it was like funny it was like him saying yeah i remember big deal and get the fuck out of here but it was like funny <laughs> here's my garbage yeah here's my garbage get out of here like he treated me like a waiter it was really funny uh, man so who who would you like to meet at this point, do you, do you have a, like a list or who, who would you like to work for in a film? Well, in a funny way, I think it would be cool to work with Gus Van Sant. You know, he did ah, some of my favorite movies. That would be a return. He was, he was the one for anyone listening uh, that doesn't know my whole acting career started because I was working at MTV and Gus Van Sant saw me on MTV. He said, Hey, Simon's got a good look for this movie I'm doing called Goodwill Hunting. I went in and auditioned for Goodwill Hunting, having never acted. I bombed the audition. He said, Simon, you're not ready to do this movie. You should go take acting class. You have something, but you're not there yet. So I go, okay, Gus Van Sant, yeah, fucking <laughs> drugstore cowboy, one of my favorite movies ever made, amongst yeah. others. I went and studied acting. So he was the reason why all of this even happened. So he recently reached out to me and goes, Hey, I saw red rocket blown away. What a performance. And I reminded him of that story. And he, uh, and I said, let's stay in touch. So in a fun way, it would be cool to 25 years later, work yeah. with the guy who sort of shoved me out into this yeah. and it spit me back to him. So just not only cause he's a great filmmaker, but because of the narrative of that. And then of course there's, you know, God, there's so many people I want to work with. Todd Phillips, you know, he's been a mentor mm. of mine who did Joker, Hangover, Old School. I mean, the guy's a legend. I want to work with him. I want to work with, um, you know, it would be cool to go do a fucking Adam Sandler movie one day for the kids, a family sure. movie. It'd be cool to go do another art house, you know, grimy. I, I just want to do everything. Tarantino you know, and, would be fun. Tarant I mean, if, there's so many obvious ones like that, like Spielberg, Tarantino. Um, what about Woody Allen? If Woody Allen offered you a role, would you do it? That's a good question. I would have to kind of defer to my publicists and management to what the landscape is and if that's possible, because I'm sort of not tone deaf, but it's so hard to keep up with, like, who's in the doghouse, who's not, what you can and can't do. Right. I wouldn't trust my gauge of whether or not that's okay. That they, my, you know, my team around me, which is very knowledgeable of that kind of shit, would would I would say to them, because that's not really an artistic decision, I would say, like, well, what do you guys think? And if they were like, no way, then I would I would listen to them, you know. Um, yeah. So that's, that's hard a to shame. Say. That's yeah, a shame, that's though, because yeah. I mean, I, I know you haven't looked into it, but uh, I read a bit about his situation and he is, I mean, two different state agencies looked into that charge and neither one of them filed any charges against him both wow. said there was no basis to it i mean his soon-to-be ex-wife freaked out and set him up to destroy his career and she fucking did it and that's that's the way it looks to me and it's just a bummer I even, yeah i can't even keep up anymore with who's canceled who's not i mean that whole one it's just like it, it, i would uh yeah, that's too bad. I mean, because of course I'd want to do a Woody Allen movie. Yeah, fucking yeah, like, yeah. Fuck. And I wonder if he saw this movie. Like, this so it's so hard for me to wrap my head around the fact that Steven Spielberg saw this movie. Like, everybody will want to see a new Sean Baker movie that's in Hollywood because he is one of the last auteur independent filmmakers doing it for the love of the craft and not doing it for money. You know, going back to what we talked about in the beginning, Sean, I admire so much. 
every single meeting I'm getting with these big, you know, Netflix to these big, you know, movie studios to they're all like, you know, why doesn't Sean take a big money job and do like a big movie? And I say, because he wants to do it his way. And if he takes the money, then he'll have a producer over his shoulder going, you got to do this, this and this. And then the movie won't be his vision. And he's so brilliant and smart. He doesn't want anyone else fucking up his movie. And he's right. So therefore, yeah. he doesn't make a ton of money, but he does it his way. And I got to respect that, you know, um, may, you know, maybe one day he'll be in a position where he'll get a huge, you know, budget to do a movie and they'll say, hey, here's this amount. Do it. But that's very hard to, um, you know, get that money behind you and have zero input. You know what I mean? Like Red Rocket yeah. was made for a million dollars. That's nothing. Yeah. The fact that he stretched a million dollars into that movie is mind blowing to me because I just went and shot a Saturday Night Live three minute rap video skit that was over a million dollars. Like it's fucking crazy. And that was digital. And he shot that movie on film. It, it, it's so mind blowing yeah. to me. So, you know, Sean has his formula. He has his deal. And, uh, you know, that's it. That's amazing. I respect it. Yeah. Dude, uh, I've taken up a lot more than an hour of your day. And uh, the sun is setting here. So I'm going to go for a walk before the sun goes down. I, I told you I'm on Grand Canaria. Yeah. And the, we got here the evening, came to this Airbnb we rented, got up the next morning, walked out half a block from the apartment. We're on our way to get a coffee. There's a big poster. Yeah, Sean Baker <laughs> is yeah. coming to speak here on Gran Canaria in April, in, in like two weeks, I guess, at a cinema oh, so festival. That's so cool. I sent him that. And uh, yeah, he was jazzed to see that. Although he hates, like, he doesn't want any attention. So I think underneath, he's like, ah, take that down. He doesn't like that. But um, <laughs> yeah, man, uh, if you're so, will you be there when he's there? Uh, I'm not sure. Uh, possibly. Okay. I think it's the 24th. Cool. If, if I'm here, I'll definitely go say hi. Yeah. yeah. I'll connect you guys and you can go yeah. check it out. But to everybody listening out there, man, uh, I, um, owe so much to Chris. It's kind of like, you know, what's funny is that Pete Davidson reached out to me recently and he kind of like hit me up to sort of, um, in a weird way, like, Hey man, I saw your movie. I loved it. I, I, I read it. I read some interviews you've done and do you think, uh, you know, I could come out and hang out with you in the desert and kind of soak up some of the, the wisdom that you or the, you know, I don't know whatever that sounds pretentious, but in a weird way, I kind of looked at Pete reaching out to me and finding me similar to how I found you to sort of steer me the right way and kind of teach me a couple of things instinctively. So, um, you know, it's kind of cool to have, uh, learned from you and hopefully kind of pass some stuff on to Pete because we're all students and teachers in this fucking weird life. And, um, yeah, I'm just grateful for you, man. So thank you. It's nice of you to say that, man. I, I feel the same. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with my boy, Simon Rex. He's awesome. You can find him everywhere online. He's everywhere now blowing up. Um, yeah, definitely check out Red Rocket. Incredible film. Fantastic performance by Simon. Check me out on Substack, chrisryan.substack.com. Thanks for listening. I will leave you, as I almost always do, in the tender arms of Carsey Blanton, reminding you that you're going to die one day, so don't wait. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could keep...
because I want to And what's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say Doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation go down we'll go singing to the smoke alarms we'll dance into the ground 